0: Good morning. I have the privilege of being asked by Dylan to take the month of February. So you have to endure me for a couple weeks here. Uh, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 2 and I'd ask that you would go there with me. I was trying to look online to see what, uh, has been discussed, what has been uh, considered in this discipleship series for teaching Sunday school. I'm used to being handed the book and saying you've got, you know, to survey these chapters. So being told you, you have to come up with it on your own was, uh, new and I wanted to make sure I didn't just, you know, rehash, um, something that's been done Uh, quite a bit, so I thought it prudent to look at Acts 2, specifically verse uh, 42, and to see what the church devoted itself to for a couple reasons. Um, The main reason being that the church of Jesus Christ today is the same church that began at Pentecost. And so, you know, it would behoove us to say, what did they do from the very beginning? Uh, Also, because we're discussing discipleship, and discipleship is not just about me and my Bible and the Lord off on our own, um, figuring it out, you know, individually, but discipleship occurs in the context of the local church because when you're saved into the body of Christ, you join the body of Christ. You don't constitute the body of Christ in and of yourself. Right? You are one member of the body. So to see what were the corporate things, the corporate activities or objects that the church pursued from the very, from the very beginning is going to be instructive for us. And so I'm trusting that this will just fit right in to this whole discipleship uh, study, which has been uh, being conducted over the last uh, several months. So let's look at Acts 2.42 here, and I'll just read this from the New American Standard Bible. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And I actually want to take a week to look at each one of those. And so today, I just want to consider the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Um, Now, good and godly men have written um, thousand-page tomes on what constitutes the apostles' teaching. So I can't cover it all. Uh, But what we're going to do is just ask the question: What is that? Uh, But before that, let's look at, let's consider the context. Look at what it means to be devoted, and then we'll look at what it, the Apostles' teaching is. So there's my outline. The context, where are we? Um, what it means to be devoted? And then what constitutes the Apostles' teaching? So if you want the roadmap, there it is. What is the context? Context is this. The Lord Jesus has just ascended into um, glory, into heaven. He remains there in body. This is actually something that shocked my students when I taught junior high was that they, they thought the Lord somehow threw off his body when he went to heaven, uh, because that's where, you know, that's the spiritual world. Um, he's there right now interceding on our behalf as our great high priest. He is there, um, awaiting the consummation of the ages where then he will begin to take back the world. And we know that that occurs, that will occur as it shows in the book of Revelation. The uh, apostles, well, all the disciples, uh, not just the apostles, but they've selected Matthias to replace, uh, Judas. And I, I do personally, this is not, this is not something I can really nail down ironclad, but personally, I do believe Matthias is an apostle. Uh, some people want to say that you had to wait till the Lord chose the apostle Paul, but he was an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's kind of in a category all to himself, my opinion. Um, John MacArthur disagrees with me, so take my opinion with a grain of salt. Um, They've been committing themselves to prayer, and they're waiting on the Holy Spirit who was promised to them. And that's what the Lord Jesus said. He said um, to them in chapter 1, verse 7, "Is not for you to know times or epochs which the Lord has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So... The Holy Spirit has been promised the Holy Spirit will come, and they're waiting for that. And that's what happens in chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is verse 1, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind that filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves. They rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Uh, And this causes... A stir, and many people gather to see what this is, which maybe tells us a little bit about the purpose of that particular gift. And then Peter gives his uh, amazing sermon, where he shows this is what's always been promised. And he tells them, you killed the Lord Jesus, who is Christ, that God has made this man both Lord and Christ." This Jesus whom you crucified, that's verse 36 of chapter 2. So, what happens? Their hearts are pierced. Um, they're cut to the quick. They are uh, desiring to know what they can do to be saved. And he says, repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you see repent solo there, it really means repent and believe, oftentimes. Um just one of them is given, just believe or just repent, but they go together. You can't separate them. If you're believing, that means you're trusting, which means you're not trusting in yourself. So a repentance has happened right there because you've turned from yourself to the Lord. Uh, so you can't separate them. Um, and what happens? With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about three thousand souls. That's verse forty-one. That brings us right up to our verse. They were continually devoting themselves. So now, this—the question is, who's the they? Who's who's they? Well, it's these three thousand. It's the believers. It's the three thousand plus the um, five hundred odd who would have been. Um, Comprising the early disciples that the Lord showed Himself to in His um, after His uh, resurrection, especially the twelve uh, apostles, and so this is uh, this is a large congregation of people that uh, where the church just immediately begins with this amount of people, and what do they do? They are continually devoting themselves. So we'll just stop there. So we've looked at the context. We've just kind of walked up to it. And I want to tell you, what is this? What does it mean to be devoted to something? Devoted is, if you're into Greek, I know there's at least somebody in here. Maybe she's teaching in there. Um, who uh, I've been doing Greek with. And so uh, I guess if Ani listens to this, it's oh, There you go. And it means uh, to continue to do something with intense effort with the possible implication of despite difficulty it means to devote oneself to to keep on to persist in or to occupy oneself diligently with something to pay persistent attention to. Which, you know, we, we probably would have gotten there and just if we thinking, what does it mean to be devoted? How would that practically work out? But there's the dictionary definitions to occupy oneself diligently with something. So what did the early church do? They were continually, diligently persisting in something. The way this word was used in the secular world is there were references to being engaged in one's business or um, attending to an agricultural occupation, which meant you couldn't just, you know, throw seeds on the ground and let it be. You had to, Tend to it, right? You had to actually take steps. If you're going to run a business, um, you can't just uh, sell things and not keep the books, right? And not watch over your inventory. I guess I'm assuming business here means a retail business. Maybe that's um, a bit of a jump, but it requires stewardship. It requires regularly attending to it. It's not something that you just, you know, throw out there and forget about. So. When we look at this, I think we could understand it this way: that these practices in the church are things which we could call the regular business of the church. It's the regular stuff that the church does. I mean, we couldn't limit it here to just these four things that are mentioned—apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer—because you'd say, "Well, where's baptism?" Right? Um, that's that's an important. Ordinance in the church that's not mentioned right here. They were just baptized, so maybe you'd have to push back to that, uh, to that verse just before. But this is the regular stuff. This is, this is, these are the things that, that regularly, continually happen. This is the stuff that the church devotes itself to. These are what has been called the means of grace. And I, some, I know there's some people that are probably get a little fidgety if we start talking about grace in a non salvific way because we think we need to reserve the, the term grace for you know coming into the kingdom um, but the lord has ordained that there would be certain things with which the church conducts itself in pursuing and well, I guess we could use the term here in devoting itself to that are the means through which we are sanctified through which we grow Through which we mature. So, what are the things that the Lord has ordained by which the church grows and matures? It's these things. It's the apostles' teaching. It's fellowship. It's the breaking of bread. So maybe we're supposed to understand that as the Lord's supper. We'll figure that out when we get there. If that's Breaking of bread, does that mean potlucks? Does that mean the Lord's Supper? Does it mean both together? Early church always joined them with the agape feast and then the Lord's Supper. They're always put together. Um, And to prayer, or maybe to the prayers, because it's articular, actually, in the original language. So maybe there's an idea of specific kinds of prayers which are supposed to be part of the church. We'll figure that one out, too. Um, These are the stuff that the Lord is given to the church as the practices of the church by which the church grows. And so we should be devoted to them. We should be continually pursuing these. Um, it's just, you know, we'll t- I'll talk about this more when we get to fellowship, but this is one reason why the the Lone Ranger Christian, if I could borrow a phrase from Pastor Gary, the Lone Ranger Christian uh, is a a contradiction because... It's these 3,000 people devoting themselves together to these things corporately. And you see that that's actually the practice. If you just push into 43 through 47 here. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. In our modern American context, we think of the church. We think of the church being Something that we go and we attend and then um, kind of get the product we want and then go our own way. And so it's, you know, I I, I come to the gas station once a week. Kinda. I get filled up, I go out. And I get filled up, I go out. We don't necessarily have this idea of, no, I'm brought into this living body that is persistently together and fellowshipping together um, in some way. So... This is one reason why, um, things like the shutdowns that happened in 2020 were really testing to the church because that drove right at the heart of what does it mean to actually fellowship and be with one another and be a, be a body? Because if we think of it as like, I can just go be individual. I really don't have a problem with just me and my internet church. That doesn't, that doesn't create a problem. But if we're supposed to be together in some way, and we all kind of felt that we were, then there's a problem. There's, that, there's a question that needs to be answered. Um, and I know that was caused a great deal of trouble here, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, <clears throat> so, devoting oneself to um, the church is, I think, something we do individually. We devote ourselves to the church, our individual selves, and so we devote ourselves as a body, because all of us are doing it, and devoting ourselves to each other. So, let's look at... Uh, what constitutes the Apostles' teaching. This is where we're going to spend most of the time here. And I want to just ask this question, what is it? What is the Apostles' teaching? What would they have been teaching? If you look at the sermon that Peter has just given, what has he appealed to in order to Testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Savior, the Anointed One, chosen by God to save God's people. What 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 is He quoting and appealing to? It's the Old Testament, right? Um, David's testimony. Hmm? David's testimony. That's right, exactly. And He's quoted both the Psalms. Uh, he's also quoted the the prophet Joel. So he's he's been all over uh the sections of the Old Testament which goes to show that, you know, the Old Testament, they understood the Old Testament to constitute the word of God from the very beginning. That was never a question. If you just if you want to say how did it how could how can we know that we can trust that the Old Testament books we have are the right books, you know, and should should we add the Maccabees to them, or something like that. These other books, you would you would say, well, how did the Lord Jesus and the apostles use the Old Testament? What what sections of the Old Testament did they appeal to? And they appealed to the law, and the prophets. Um, and that's kind of the the way to easily break down the the first five books of the Bible, and then the books up to Malachi. That's just the, the general categorization of those. You can say law prophets. Sometimes they say law prophets' writings, and that's actually the Hebrew word for the Old Testament is Tanakh, which is um, Torah and Nevi'im uh, and Ketuvim, and they abbreviate it Tanakh, and that's law prophets' writings. Um, and the Lord Jesus and the apostles used all uh, books from each of those sections and... So we can look at just the Gospels and Acts and recognize they understood the Old Testament to be the very Word of God. So if there's ever been a question of of that in your mind, um, the Lord Jesus Himself knew it to be the Word of God. He appealed to it when he was being persecuted by the devil. Um, the apostles appealed to it over and over again to show that the things that were happening in the church were promised in the Scriptures. And they refer to it as scripture. There's no question that that is one of the things that constituted the teaching of the apostles. All throughout the epistles, what is the apostle Paul doing? He's, he's directing you back to the Old Testament to show, uh, to bring truth. You know, if you, you think of him where he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So he's getting a principle out of the law, applying it to a New Testament context. He's going back to Abraham to show that the Lord has always saved people by faith. That's still the case today. uh, And he's um, doing that to show that those who would put their trust in their works and how they can keep the law are foolish because the law was meant to direct you to trust the Lord by faith. So how did they use the law? They used it as the word of god they understood it to be what it is the word of god um, just a point of application there um, in our sunday school curriculum we have it set up to where every 5 years you've surveyed the whole bible uh that's just that's just how it's set up and you've we've deviated into the into the discipleship study um for the last the last quarter and this quarter right i think are the only two um, and then i'm assuming they'll go back to that i don't know um but the the church across the U.S. Uh, does not... I don't think it, it has a habit of knowing the Old Testament very well. Um, and the Old Testament comprises two-thirds of your Bible. It's where we get most of the doctrine of God. Um, it It's where we see the works of the Lord to his people throughout human history. In Romans 9... Um, the Apostle Paul makes the point that the Lord was essentially putting himself on display in order to receive glory for how he was merciful to the vessels prepared for mercy. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament. So um, I guess the point of application is, dig into the Old Testament. I was just given a book called Preaching the Minor Prophets, um, written by Irv Busnitz, who's a professor at Master Seminary, Elder at Grace Church. He was one of the founding guys at the seminary, and just a phenomenal Hebrew scholar. And he made a point in the introduction of that book that the Old Testament is rich, and it's tedious to get into at first, because there's so much there. But the reward of knowing that part of your Bible, it seems like a lot of Christians don't care to take the time to know that part of the Bible. So if that's a temptation you have, I would just... Shore you up right now and say, um, study it. Devote yourself to studying it and understanding it as well. So clearly, the apostles' doctrine must have included the Old Testament. What else did it include? Well, if you just again look at what Peter was doing in chapter two, he's preaching his eyewitness testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what else does the apostles' doctrine? Uh, What else is it comprised of? And that is their personal eyewitness testimony. They were there. They walked with Christ. They spoke with Christ. Before his death, after his resurrection, they heard his teachings. They were actually promised by the Lord Jesus that they would be empowered to remember everything that they'd learned by him. If you go to John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That is in the Upper Room Discourse. He's speaking to the 11 apostles. I don't know at what point Judas has left. I'm just not remembering that. I think he left in chapter 13, verse 30. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So there's just the 11 here, and um, the Lord Jesus is saying to them that the Holy Spirit will come. And he's going to, you know, divinely empower you to remember the word I've taught in order that you might be my witnesses. And that's, I'm adding that last part there, but I'm getting that from Acts chapter 1, where again he said in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses." both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So who were the apostles? They were witnesses of the words and actions of Christ, of his life, death, resurrection, and they proclaimed what they saw to uh, the people um, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of The earth. So what constituted apostolic doctrine? Yes, it was the Old Testament scriptures, but it wasn't just that. It was also their eyewitness testimony of what they saw of the Lord Jesus. They were commanded to be these witnesses and they did so. And so you can see in scripture that the words of the apostles are treated by the other apostles to be Scripture. So one of those is in Second Peter, where Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Record the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. According to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Then he says, and which are some things hard to understand." Yeah. So if you aren't the first person to find the Apostle Paul difficult to understand at times, apparently the Apostle Peter did too. Uh, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also. Notice this. Where does he categorize Paul's letters? the rest of the scriptures, the rest of the scriptures, not as they do also the scriptures, as in a category that's separate from Paul's writings, but in saying and calling it the rest of the scriptures, he's grouping Paul's writings in there underneath that banner. See, So Peter understood the words of his fellow apostle Paul to be the very word of God. That is so instructive for us as we think about what is apostolic doctrine because we want to know that if we're going to behave as the church has always behaved and we're going to continually devote ourselves to the apostles teaching, do I need an apostle here teaching in order to be able to devote myself to apostolic doctrine? I'd say no because we have apostolic doctrine. In this document, that the apostolic teaching is the New Testament. It's the New Testament. What is the New Testament? The Gospels are eyewitness testimony of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You'd say, okay, well, Mark and Luke were not apostles. You know, they weren't, they weren't the twelve. Well, yeah, Mark wrote down Peter's account. And Luke um, made sure to carefully research and get the eyewitness testimony. So he says, Luke says, And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. So what's he saying his sources are? eyewitness testimony. So so the Gospel of Luke is eyewitness testimony. Um, who wrote Acts? Luke. Again, you say the same guy, not an apostle. But what is Acts following? It's the teaching and practice of the apostles as the Holy Spirit is empowering the apostles to take the Gospel out. So most of it follows the Apostle Paul. Um, and that, again, would... <clears throat> show that Luke had, he was in the right place uh, to get it right because he was following the man who was doing these things and hearing and learning from the people who were direct eyewitnesses of these things. Um, So it's eyewitness testimony. When you have the epistles, who wrote the epistles? Well, you have the Pauline epistles um, of you know, all the, all the epistles Paul wrote, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, etc., etc. You have what's called the general epistles or the Catholic epistles written by um, John, who's the Apostle John. Um, and then you have uh, written by Peter, 1st, 2nd Peter. Then you have James, who was a brother of the Lord, and Jude, who was a brother of the Lord. So And these two men were significant figures in the early church and were uh, most likely elders in the church. James, at least, was an elder in the church in Jerusalem, so he worked right alongside of the apostles. So his word, too, would have comprised the teaching of the church. So that would be apostolic doctrine. Um, Hebrews from the early church was always categorized with Paul's writings, and there's nothing in it which contradicts the rest of Scripture. Um, And I don't know if Paul wrote it, but um, it's so... They understood it to be associated with him, so even if he didn't write it or preach it, it was written by somebody who was associated with his ministry, so they probably got their doctrine from him. So again, apostolic doctrine. Revelation, written by John, the Apostle. So again, apostolic doctrine. So where do we get the New Testament from? The Apostles. It is the teaching of the apostles. So when the early church devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles, even though they hadn't written the New Testament yet at this time, the same truth that they record in the New Testament that they um, put in the gospel accounts and then in the epistles that they write in order to shore up the church, the same truth then, which is then handed on to the elders of all the local churches that they founded to preach and proclaim is in these documents and has come down to us as the New Testament. And so is the very word of God. Um, So what should we as the church be devoting ourselves to? It's the word of God. It's these other things too, but in terms of the apostles teaching, it's, the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Just a couple notes here about early church history um, in keeping with this theme. Um, The church universally accepted the books which we have in in the New Testament as the scriptures. There were some controversies that began even as early as the second century, which if you remember the way that works, the first century is zero to 100 the second century is 100 to 200. Okay, we, so it's not the second century isn't after 200, but as early as the second century. So, in the 100 and following years, um, there was a a heretic known as Marcion, who drew up his list of what he accepted as um, the word of God of the New Testament books, and he only accepted a, uh, accepted a shortened version of Luke. Paul's epistles, but not the pastoral, so not 1st, 2nd Timothy or Titus. And certain heretics like him started to do that where they said, well, you know, we don't accept these books as as the Bible. We only accept these ones as the Bible. And so that produced a controversy where the church then needed to, to say, okay, hold on. Everyone has universally accepted all of these, but now you're saying that you don't accept this segment, so We as a church need to get together and basically formalize what we accept as the New Testament. What is the Word of God? And they looked at, they wanted to get three criteria uh, here. So where is that? So the criteria for accepting any book as canonical Needed to have these three qualifications: it needed to be apostolic or prophetic authorship evidencing inspiration; it needed to be in consistent doctrinal agreement with existing scripture; and it needed to have a universal acceptance among the people of God. Because um, the early church was committed to the fact that this book testifies of its own authority; that when you read it, you know it's authoritative. Um, unlike the Roman Catholic doctrine, which says that this book is authoritative because the church says it's the word of God, as if the church has the right to determine that. But the, the church has always recognized, not determined, recognized that the word of God, that the Bible is the word of God. It's a distinction, but it's an important distinction. Um, so one guy uh, in the early church, he lived from eighty sixty to 130. So he was alive when the apostles were alive. Uh, he he would have learned his doctrine from um, Paul or or John or some of the other apostles. His name was Papias, and he says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though indeed not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. Uh, For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, that's Mark. But afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them, for he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard from Peter and not to state any of them falsely. So from from the very beginning the church has understood that these documents, they're from the apostles or they're connected to the apostles by close association. They're they're written by someone who's writing down the teaching of the apostles. And so they knew these are authoritative. If you have a MacArthur study Bible, in the introduction, there is a section which says how we got the Bible. And I would just commend that to you. It is very good. i read through it. There's some um, really helpful parts of that, uh, which I don't have it here. Here it is. Um, They walk through answering these questions. Where did the Bible come from? Whose thinking did it reflect? Did any of the books of the Bible get lost in time past? If you remember when the Da Vinci Code was a big thing and everybody was freaking out about it and they were saying, you know, maybe the church did actually lose documents, so we need to add these documents into the Bible because these were lost. Maybe the church voted on them and they didn't like this one for some reason. Um, and this refutes that. Uh, does it live up to its claims? Who wrote it? Was it God or men? Um you know, if they're written over 1,500 years, then how have things not been lost or changed in them from the originals? That kind of stuff. And they answer these questions, and it's very helpful, so I'd commend it to you. Um, and they say, and here it says the same things. For the writing had to have recognized prophetic or apostle, uh, a prophet or apostle as its author. It could not disagree with or contradict previous scripture. And it had to have general consensus by the church. So, very helpful. I commend that to you. The introductory stuff, the maps, the charts, and that in the MacArthur Study Bible are very, very good. All right. So let me bring this back around here. When the church in Acts is committing itself to the apostles' teachings, it's committing itself to the Word of God, to the... Witness of what has occurred with Christ, His death, His resurrection, His life, um, to the uh, divinely empowered, the Holy Spirit empowered testimony of the apostles, which, can, which so they can understand how this is fulfilling the Old Testament, and that's you know something that the um, the priests even were just shocked that these who are unlearned men are able to you know understand the law and the Old Testament in the way they did. And that's because the Spirit was empowering these men to understand it. Um, They would have been learning it their whole life in synagogue, but the Spirit was, you know, illuminating their hearts. So when we gather as a church, what is, you could say, the first thing, um, at least that we know of from this text, the first thing that we should be devoting ourselves to, just following what we've just talked about in this lesson? What should be the first thing? It'd be... Apostle's doctrine, the word of God. Yeah. So, you know, my guess is that you found this church, if you haven't been here from when it was founded, um, that you found this church because you were looking for Bible preaching. That's usually the common denominator for people who come to Trinity or Hillcrest is, you know, I, I grew up at a church where I was, I just became saved these years ago, and then I was in this kind of a church, which really was more of a light show, Where I was in this church, and we didn't really talk too much about the Bible. I was in this church where we talked about the Bible, but it didn't seem like we were getting deep enough, and I just wanted more. And then where do you end up? You end up at a church like Trinity or Hillcrest. This is the same um, testimony I heard from so many of my fellow students at seminary um, where they had a similar experience, and then As they stumbled across really good teaching online and then found solid churches in their area, they realized, I need to go learn how to teach the Bible like these men. And the reason you're here is probably because you love the Word of God. And if that's why you're here, I just want to say you're in good company because you are committed to the same thing that the church has been committed to since the very beginning. Since the day of Pentecost, the church has been committing itself to the word of God, to apostolic doctrine, which should also then help us to analyze the health of other ministries around. Because there are a number of buildings and congregations which bear the name Church which if they're not committing themselves to understanding and preaching and teaching the apostles' doctrine and teaching it rightly, to rightly divide it, as Paul tells Timothy, then they're not behaving like the church, like the church from the very beginning. This is not, it's not up to us to decide, you know, which of this gets emphasis, which of this gets to be what guides my life. This is the word of God. This is apostolic doctrine. This is the teaching. This is this is the very word of Christ preserved rec- recorded preserved and handed down to us by the apostles and the prophets. Uh, so we need to take very careful attention to it, pay very careful attention to it and um avoid those who either play fast and loose with it or merely give it lip service. Um, So we need to be careful not to um, go near false doctrine and false prophets. Um, The Lord Jesus, he reserved his harshest words for those who twisted the word of God. Uh, If you just go to Matthew 23, and you just... It's 23 where he... um, I should, li- I should list a reference as long as I know it's the right reference. So let me look at it. Um, yeah, where he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he says that a number of times and shows just over and over again is pointing out that they are using the word of God to, um, abuse the people and to pervert religion. Um, in fact, he even tells the people that they, they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses, which means that you know, they have religious authority. He says, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. Right. So oh, listen to them as they declare the word of God, but don't follow their example and he just condemns them over and over again the the harshest words of the lord were reserved for false teachers the when he looks at jerusalem when he looks at the people who are like sheep without a shepherd and i forget where that reference is from um you see the compassion of the lord as his heart breaks for these people um, because they're his people and they're his people that are lost in a system that is perverting the word of God and um, putting heavy weights and burdens on their backs and, and holding them to a standard they can't keep and not um, declaring the mercy and forgiveness of God, the long-suffering of God. Even you know, Nicodemus, um, who comes to Jesus in John 3, you know, the, Lord ha- the Lord says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Like they had all the doctrine they needed in the, Word, in the Old Testament scriptures to get this right. And they got it wrong. And they harmed people as a result. And they, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23 says that, you know, they go so many miles to win one convert. But when they do so, they make him twice the son of hell that they are. So the doctrine that they were preaching was a damning doctrine. There are men and women today, who purport to teach the word of God, who make their hearers twice the sons of hell that they are. We need to avoid those ministries. I'm not going to name names right now, but be very careful to to examine everything we hear and compare it to this standard, because this is the word of God, and this is what the church devotes itself to. So those are my quick application points off of this. Um I would like to, at Hillcrest, I was always used when I when I taught Sunday school there, I was always used to opening it up, saying questions, comments. I don't know if that's normal, but I'm going to do it. So are there questions or comments? Did I say something that's confusing, that needs clarification? Or did I get your mind thinking about something that you want to know more about? Now is your chance. Ask me. And if I don't know, I'll ask somebody else to answer. I was told in seminary to to wait a minute before you keep talking. So I just broke that rule right now. All right. Well, then, I will close this with prayer, and we'll be out, I think, five minutes early. Maybe you're ten minutes late. I don't know. Uh, But I think five minutes early. So please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word, which we have, which we have the privilege of studying, which you gave to your witnesses, the apostles, which you've preserved and you've handed down to us in uh, what we have in our laps, the word of God. Uh, We're just so privileged to have been saved and brought into your body. We do not deserve it, uh, and we know that, and yet you've loved us, you've saved us, and you've given us your word to guide us and to lead us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to continue to devote ourselves to the study of it, to the church where we hear it proclaimed, and to um, make our conversation and our, our conduct, our manner of life, to be in keeping with it and to be abounding with it. We pray this in your name. Amen.